0: And you got to remember, it's not just their direct uh, conflicts that might exist, but they may also have indirect conflicts where um, it may not be their money being invested or they may not directly be deriving benefits. But someone close to them uh, may be um, the former law firm that they worked for or other business associates or those who may be connected to friends and family. Um, So you have a lot of that going on also. Those are the type of connections that are even more difficult to uncover. Uh, We might be able to do a search and try to find out what connections, if any, the presiding judge might have to the entire, you know, prison industrial complex system, Uh, but it's much more difficult to discern um, whether or not they're best friends with someone uh, who might have those connections, and they might be looking to benefit their friends or, again, their family members. So it's a very difficult thing. And that's why the whole privatization of the system is just a bad thing.
1: Sean Dustin spent time in federal and state prison for drug trafficking and fraud. Upon release in 2006, he had nothing but the clothes on his back, a bag of mail, and legal paperwork. In 2010, he kicked a longtime methamphetamine habit and started the long climb back up the ladder of life. This is the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast. If you want transparency and authenticity, you're in the right place. This is the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast, and this is Sean Dustin.
2: This is the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast, and I'm your host, Sean Dustin. Thanks for stopping by this evening. If this is your first time uh, watching or listening, welcome. If uh, you're returning, welcome back. It's good to have you with us this evening. Um, if you are watching this and you like the uh, the software that I'm using, uh, StreamYard, you can use my affiliate link, which is down in the description and you'll get a $10 discount and I'll get some uh, dough too. Once you spend $25 and that'll help support the show. Uh, If you're watching on YouTube, do me a favor and hit that subscribe button in the uh, corner. Thumbs the video up, please. That will definitely help. If you're on Facebook, do me a favor, share and like, If you're on the podcast platforms, which this will be airing tomorrow, uh, Spotify, uh, iTunes, any of the major platforms, um, actually I'm on all the platforms, go ahead and subscribe there as well. That will help me uh, with visibility across the platforms itself. Uh, If you want to support the show monetarily, you can do that as well. Uh, In the description, there are all the ways that you can support the show. Uh, on my link tree, you can follow that and, uh, you can catch me in all of my social media. Follow me there. You can, uh, you know, tip the show. Like I said, either through Cash App, PayPal, any of the, uh, the sources that I have there, uh, feel free. And yeah, that's about it. Uh, yesterday we had a good, uh, good couple of interviews with Monica Perez from the propaganda report. And then we also talked to, um, Brian Carpenter, who was a former, former NFL player, uh, with, uh, used to play for the Washington Redskins, which I believe is now the Washington football team. So we had that going. That was a great uh, conversation. And th- today, this evening we have. His attorney, uh, Robert L. Jenkins Jr., who's a federal attorney, and he represented Robert. And so why don't we go ahead and bring Robert in or represented Brian? Let me go ahead and bring Robert in. Hey Robert, how you doing?
0: I'm doing well. What about yourself?
2: Uh not too bad, not too bad. Got a little tongue tied there.
0: <laughs> not a problem, not a problem.
2: It it happens. I would imagine being an attorney, you uh, you're pretty familiar with uh, having to talk to to people and and stuff like that during trials and and all that stuff you have to do to to be a good good attorney, right?
0: Yep, is what I do every day of my life for the last 26 years.
2: Yeah, so you're a you're a federal attorney out of uh, Washington D.C. That's correct. That's correct. And you have a very, very extensive background. Like, I mean, you your your pedigree is uh, top notch.
0: Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Been at it for a while
2: now. Okay, okay. Um, and one of the reasons that we uh, decided we want that you're here is we share a um, an acquaintance, or I don't know if it's a, it's an acquaintance to me, okay. um, Allie. Oh yeah, the publicist. Wonderful. Yeah, she's, uh, she's really good. She, she hit me up and the moment she said, uh, federal attorney, my ears went, ba-ding. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> I've been, cause I was talking to my friend Holly and she should be, uh, joining us this evening at some point. Um, she's actually, uh, same deal. She did three years on a, on a conspiracy charge, white collar crime, yeah. um, she, something that she didn't even have anything to do with other than the fact that she worked there. That's right you know and got caught up in it and so that's a huge problem and the conspiracy charge in itself is so broad yeah and the first time that I ever had any like when I went through my my issue with the federal system I mean I I didn't they had me dead to rights I couldn't fight it I couldn't do anything I didn't have the money to do it I just kind of had to accept it but I mean I did what they said right um, but when I was fighting my case, and there was a bunch of other folks that were in there, and they were on ghost dope uh, charges, where you know some guy got in trouble and decided to put their name in a hat to to get some time off their sentence, and they didn't, uh, they had moved on with their life and stopped. You know, doing all that stuff and had regular jobs. And, you know, that was a period in time in their life where they may have made some bad choices, right?
0: That's right. You see it all every day. You know, you see it every day. People get caught up in the incentive for others to, you know, come up with stories, stories that uh, the prosecutor wants to hear, um, the federal agents want to hear. Um, You satisfy them, they have ways of doing things for you. um, So the system kind of feeds off of itself.
2: And that that's not investigative work. That's right. That's just hearsay.
0: Yeah, for the most part it is. But, you know, if they get more than one person to say it, you find yourself in a difficult situation where you don't have the resources to fight back or you just don't have the evidence to prove your innocence. Now, of course, under our Constitution, we claim that you're innocent until proved guilty and that you're not required to prove you're innocent. But instead, the federal government is required to prove your guilt. Um, but that's just a concept. That's a theory uh, in the real world. Uh, jurors and judges want to hear if you didn't do what they said you did, then tell me what you did. Uh, prove to me that you didn't do it. Uh, that's just the reality of the system that we that we live in.
2: Yeah, that's horrible. That's like yeah. kind of everything that we're seeing in this uh, in this. World right now, or at least in our country, is what's up is down, what's left is right. Everything seems to be kind of inverted. What we're taught really isn't what it is. It's what's on the backside of it, where no one can see.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, look, the the, the reality of the situation is that the vast majority of people who are eligible to serve on juries uh, come into that courtroom predisposed to believe what the prosecutor is saying. Um, they they have this image that the prosecutor is a good guy, the defense attorney and the defendant uh, wear the black hat, uh, the defense attorney shouldn't be trusted. he's representing a bad person and he's doing everything he can to just get that person quote unquote off. Um, jurors come into the box believing that um, the prosecutor and the law enforcement agents or sworn law enforcement agents wouldn't tell a lie. And they wouldn't be sponsoring witnesses and evidences if they didn't truly believe in the defendant's guilt. And they believe that the judge's role is to ensure that the conviction uh, comes down. Um, That's what average jurors believe. Uh, We see it every day when we go through the jury selection process, uh, where we get to ask prospective jurors questions to kind of fret out any biases or preconceived notions they may have. And while this doesn't happen often, from time to time, we do have some that just flat out come out and tell you, um, look, the truth of the matter is, I don't believe the defendant would be here if he hadn't done anything. He must have done something wrong um, because he's seated here. Um, and that's very unfortunate. Um, the presumption of innocence doesn't really exist in, in an American courtroom. Um, I believe it's just the opposite. Um, from the beginning of the trial until the end of the trial, there is a heavy burden on the defendant to prove that he didn't do what the prosecutor claims that he did.
2: Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. And I've, I've heard that as well um, from a state uh, attorney, I think from uh, New Mexico I had talked to, and he was a previously uh, uh, prosecutor. And he said the same thing and i i 'll get into that, but we do have live comments here on this, so um Thomas is somebody that I know uh in a couple of these groups, and he's been to uh, uh prison as well for a conspiracy to con- uh, to distribute five kilos or more yeah. of of ghost dope um, Holly is here joining us, and this is going to be my favorite interview period he's already spot on. And she works for a, uh, she works for a public defender's office. So she actually went and did time, did three years in, uh, in the federal, uh, system okay. at a camp, at a camp. And then she got out and I think, I believe she started working for, um, uh, the, the, the lawyer that represented her. And then she ended up going into as a paralegal and now she's, oh, she's going to school to, uh, to get her, her, um, her law law degree.
0: Oh man. Great that is a great
2: story. Yeah, and and that's not an, an 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 I hear that a lot. A lot of people that when they go to prison and they they especially folks that are not um what you would call the uh I don't know. Like they have means, you know what I mean? Right. It's like exactly. the white collar the white collar criminals and, and stuff like that or what they got caught up in. They have the means and the support system out there to be able to, when they get out, be able to navigate their life and, and sort of get it back on track yeah. once once like they, they pick up, up the pieces. Right. You know? And uh yeah, so we got uh Kevin Haynes, that's correct. I went to trial in the feds. Got another individual there that's a part of this Dallas County Public defender's office and now law school congratulations Holly that's amazing that you uh you got accepted and really? I know you've been yeah you've been working on that for the last uh I think you announced it maybe a couple of months ago so congratulations if I hadn't already told you so yeah um, It brings me back to to this. So, I mean, you have a lot of different things that are at play here. I mean, not every prosecutor is dirty. Not every judge is, uh, you know, bound by whatever stocks they have interests in that are connected to certain industries. Right. No doubt about it. (laughs) there's a lot of that that goes on. And I mean, I I believe that there was, uh, I would say probably about four or five years ago, there was a judge that got caught up um,
0: in Pennsylvania.
2: Yeah. We're sending the youth, the, the, the kids, right. The juveniles.
0: Yeah. 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 It it was, it was in Pennsylvania. And, and Sean, you got to remember, it's not just their direct uh, conflicts that might exist, but they may also have indirect conflicts where, Um, It may not be their money being invested or they may not directly be deriving benefits, but someone close to them uh, may be um, the former law firm that they worked for or other business associates or those who may be connected to friends and family. Um, So you have a lot of that going on also. And those are the type of connections that are even more difficult to uncover. Uh, We might be able to do a search and try to find out what connections of any the presiding judge might have to the entire, you know, prison industrial complex system. Um, But it's much more difficult to discern um, whether or not they're best friends with someone uh, who might have those connections, and they might be looking to benefit their friends or, again, their family members. So it's a very difficult thing, and that's why the whole privatization of the system is just a bad thing. Uh, it, it, It builds in that incentive. Um, For someone to try to get rich off of the misery and, uh, you know, someone's liberty being deprived. And it really shouldn't be about that.
2: No, no, it shouldn't. I mean, that's a conflict of interest of the worst kind. Uh, We got Kevin, you're innocent until uh, proved innocent in the feds. Holly has a question. She wants to know about preponderance of evidence.
0: Yeah, well, you know, the preponderance of evidence standard is a lower evidentiary standard in our criminal justice system um, that should not apply to um, guilt or not guilty. Um, it is, you know, we have to quantify it in a numerical sense. As I tell many of my clients, think of preponderance of evidence as being 50 plus 1 percent, um, whereas in our criminal justice system, at least by theory, Um, beyond a reasonable doubt, if you have to quantify that in numbers, that we're striving for something much higher, 95% or better, many would say. Um, But the reality is that oftentimes jurors get confused by these concepts. Um, Jury instructions are incredibly complex, difficult for lawyers and judges, people who are involved in the system every day to fully understand and appreciate. Um, So when you bring 12 regular, ordinary citizens where this is not their language that they speak every day, and you read them these jury instructions to include the distinction between preponderance of the evidence versus beyond a reasonable doubt, um, they get confused. And the reality is, I believe most jurors just think, hey, which side do I think has done a better job in proving whatever side they're advocating? Uh, and they don't parse out the difference between a preponderance and a guilty beyond a reasonable doubt standard. Very difficult.
2: Yeah, I, I would imagine it would be, especially you know since a lot of the I mean, there was. I don't know if this is true or not, but I was watching this. Uh, I think one of the, one of the the women that used to work for Alex Jones, and I, I'm mm-hmm. saying Alex Jones. Everybody, you know, not that I. I I don't agree with everything that he says, but I mean, he's been pretty right on about a few things. Um, but one of the, the, the women that used to work for him, she made a, a uh, documentary. Uh, it's called shadow, um, shadow world or, or shadow, something shadow, but it has to do with the compilation of data about everybody. Yeah. And when it comes to, uh, picking juries, what they can do now is they can pick a jury before before it actually even gets to you and you're selecting it mm-hmm. at the at the court level. They can pick a a jury that's going to give them the outcome that they want based on all the data that they have on these people that they've been getting from Google and every place else that you yeah. know. Because I mean? we're we're constantly being tracked and uh, traced and 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 data based. Pretty much. Yeah. And, and and so basically what you do, what they were doing is, you know, if they want an outcome of guilty, they'll, they'll stack that selection full of people that are going to, you know, sway that way. And so when you actually get the jury to select, it's like, well, all right, you're, all of them are going to go a certain way. So you don't really have a lot of choice.
0: Yes. Well, you know, things certainly has changed with respect to that from when I first started, when I first started, Um, It was before the Internet. So before, you know, all of this massive amount of information we now have access to. And you're absolutely correct. Um, And for well-heeled clients, clients who really have the resources to devote to it. uh, You can always bring in jury consultants. You can have focus groups. uh, You can do mock trials before the real trial um, to see how things are going to play out in front of your selected or preferred jurors. Um, so we are very much more advanced today than what we used to be. Um, I know in my practice, we definitely take advantage of the information that's out there in social media. Um, we research, review Facebook, Instagram, uh, LinkedIn. We try to gather as much information as we can about prospective jurors um, to see their political leanings, their social views on particular issues that might resonate throughout our trial. Um, and then they become our targets um, to try to get on the jury. Um, so, you know, this concept that the Constitution talks about a jury of your peers and it should be just a cross section of our society, um, at least today, that's not really true. And both sides are doing it. The prosecutor is doing it. Uh, the defense is doing it. It becomes unbalanced when, you know, the prosecutor has ample resources to devote To something like this, but a lot of defendants simply don't. Um, The vast majority of people being prosecuted for offenses in this country, serious as well as petty offenses, um, are poor, are are people who can't afford a good, competent legal representation. And even if they can afford the lawyer, uh, they can't afford all the extra pieces that the lawyer might need in order to really do a thorough job, the private investigator the ability to have an independent review of forensic, ballistic uh, blood evidence. Um, You know, very few clients stand in a position to be able to do that. So when we look at some of the outcomes in this country of how some very wealthy people get a certain outcome and those without the same kind of resources get a different kind of outcome, that's often what's at play.
2: Hmm. You mentioned, you mentioned something about the, uh, like blood, uh, splatter evidence and all of that stuff. And I was listening to a Joe Rogan episode and he had on David Fromm and another gentleman from the Innocence Project. Yeah. And they're really pushing a lot of that is junk science like the, the blood spatter, the bite mark evidence, um, all of these different things that that they throw at you, the prosecution will throw at you, it's not really sound science.
0: Well, you know, it's, it's always very troubling because you know on a defense side that if the prosecutor is successful with having um, that type of evidence admitted, um, jurors are going to buy it. Jurors are going to believe it. Um, and they are uh, because, again, the prosecutor is sponsoring it, the judge is allowing it, um, and that's all the credibility the average person really needs. And then you also got to recognize that, you know, what we see on TV and pulp culture is having an impact, too, um, ever since, you know, NCIS and CSI and all these shows started to come up. Um, it really cuts both ways now, if I'm really um, honest. When a prosecutor doesn't have that kind of evidence to offer, um, most jurors now have come to expect it. Um, so if a fingerprint isn't recovered that matches the defendant, that can go a long way in helping you prove, you know, reasonable doubt. Um, if there's not biological evidence left there at the scene that matches to the defendant a lot of time, um, that will help you a lot in order to, you know, raising the specter of reasonable doubt. But you're right. I mean, a lot of these sciences that have been developed. I remember in the early days, a cell site. Um, cell phone tracking and things of that nature has um, gotten a lot better, and the science um, supports it more than what it did when it first started. Um, but jurors have been eating that up ever since, uh, ever since it first was introduced. Um, they're just inclined to believe it if the judge lets it in.
2: Yeah, that that definitely is a a problem. I would say that's my dog. Hey, Shh. <laughs> Dad's trying to record. <laughs> um, Holly had a question down here. She says, knowing the Fed conviction percentage, what would you tell a client facing a sentence and being offered a plea?
0: Well, look, I, I, I always share that information with uh, with my clients. Um, it's true that the federal conviction rate is incredibly high. In some districts, as high as 95 percent, um, but in pretty much all of them, um, no lower than 90 percent. And those are pretty daunting. uh, First, you got to put that in perspective. That's 90, 95 percent of all cases. And the vast majority of cases in federal system um, are resolved by plea. Um, So if you take a little bit deeper look behind that number, what you really want to ask yourself is what is the conviction rate for those people who actually go to trial? Um, And then it gets a little lower. It's still not great, but it is a little better. Um, now, I encourage all of my clients, if you didn't do what they said you did, um, then you should go to trial, regardless of what the consequences are. Now, I certainly appreciate and understand that people have to make business decisions, right? You have to decide whether or not, you know, taking a chance of being um, taken away from your family, um, going to prison for a very lengthy period of time, or being able to accept, Uh, What the facts appear to be um, and mitigate the uh, impact on yourself and your family and maybe take a plea of convenience. Um, It's unethical for me to encourage you to do that, but I certainly recognize that it does happen. Um, So my advice to all of my clients is if you didn't do it, let's go to trial. Now, as a consequence of that, um, I have percentage wise. Um, I probably go to trial more often than most of my colleagues. Um, Many of my clients seek me out for that reason. Um, I inherit a lot of cases um, from lawyers who the client becomes frustrated with because they, for whatever reason, believe the lawyer isn't prepared to go to trial. And that's what they want to do. Um, So I think a disproportionate number of my clients actually go to trial.
2: Yeah, that was one of the things that the the attorney I was talking to prior, uh, was saying, he's like, there's a couple of different things at play. You know, a lot of it is the culture within the office itself, uh, the culture of winning and, and, you know, when it all means, and it really doesn't matter how how you attain that win. And then also too, that there are some, uh, client, cause I I experienced this. I, Uh when I knew that there was some stipulations, you know, they have to test the drugs. They had to do all these things. I knew that there was a backlog. And if I didn't waive my rights to a speedy trial, then, you know, 60 days would not – they wouldn't be able to do it within the 60 days and then they'd have to throw the case out. And I actually caught my my public defender working with the prosecutor to extend that. And you know, I you know, we went to court and said, "Oh, we're going to have to, you know, go another week." And I was like, "I, I don't agree to this, no." Right. And they didn't care a, a one bit about what I had to say about it.
0: Yeah. They went.
2: They went and did it anyways. And so I, I brought that up to him, and he goes, "Well, you know, also too that there is not every attorney is is capable of going to trial,
0: <laughs> right." You know, um, we're we're not all the same. I mean, it's no different from any other profession, right? You have good ones, you have bad ones, you have aggressive defense attorneys, and you have not so aggressive defense attorneys. Oftentimes I tell clients, particularly if they're already represented by counsel, um, I often will, you know, during my initial consultation, try to get a sense as to what is their objective. Um, Are you looking for just a better plea deal? Or are you set to go to trial? Um, Tell me what you're really looking after. If you just want a plea deal, oftentimes I will tell clients that, well, you know, there's a lot easier ways to go about doing that than hiring me. Um, I'm not going to be the least expensive attorney that you might consult with. um, But my fees often are reflective of the fact that most of the individuals who hire me are looking to go to trial. Um, That's my reputation. Um, that's my standing in the legal community um, so that's why many of my clients seek me out uh, but there are other lawyers who are equally capable to work out a deal for you if that's what you're after
2: that's a great that's a great answer uh, Ali popped in she said excellent Rob uh, hashtag take it to trial <laughs> hi Allie. thanks thanks for the plug thank you <laughs> um yeah so I, I Uh, A lot of people can say, you know, you have all these problems with this and you have all these issues with the uh, with the, uh, you know, the conspiracy charge. Well, if you weren't doing anything wrong to begin with, then you wouldn't have to be complaining about this.
0: Right. Well, you know, that's that's one of the reasons why politically it's not very sexy or attractive to get these laws changed because that's the public's perception. That's certainly the way politicians feel. Um, They're not interested in doing anything that might help people who find themselves on the wrong side of the law. Uh, Again, that presumption of innocence, right? Uh, If it truly was there, it wouldn't be viewed that way uh, by average citizens or politicians. You'd understand that just because someone was accused of a crime doesn't mean they actually committed the offense. Mm -hmm. So the law should be fair no matter what. Um, and, you know, conspiracy is just one of those wicked, wicked weapons in a prosecutor's um, um, toolbox where he doesn't have to prove that you actually committed a substantive offense. That's that's the scariest thing about it. You know, you can be convicted of a conspiracy offense, um, even though the supposed sub- substantive offense was never actually completed or even attempted. And I'll give you an example. You know, if you and I sat down and we talked about robbing a bank and we came up with a plan on how we were going to do it, and let's say that plan included you and I going out and acquiring some ski masks, you know, the time we leave to go to the store to buy the ski mask, if we're arrested at that moment in time, we're miles away from the bank, we haven't even looked at what bank we're going to rob we could be tried and convicted of conspiracy to commit bank robbery. And all we did was talk about it. But if you take one step toward furthering it, that's it. That's enough. And that one step could be as simple as, well, we're going to need some masks. Let's go buy some masks. We don't even get to the store to buy the masks. The conspiracy offense is completed once we leave our house headed to buy the masks. That's scary.
2: No, it is. It's real scary. And, and I mean, we're seeing a lot of stuff now coming out, like with the, uh, the definition of domestic terrorism, Yep. you know, and how the push to that is starting to help. Ah,
0: There's a lot of scary things going on right now. (laughs) There are, you know, sometimes when these laws come on the books, um, people don't have the vision to see into the future as to how they might be applied in other situations. And that's what we're seeing with that. Um, And and it's not the first time. um, You know, originally the RICO statute um, was specifically designed to go after organized crime. Um, And now we see it being used in every other um, aspect, Um, whether it be just a bunch of juveniles who might be involved in a street gang, they get charged with RICO. Uh, We see in the white collar um, um, situation, um, high up ranking executives in corporations that might do bad things. They get charged with RICO. Uh, That's not the way it was originally conceived uh, when it first got on the books in the early late 60s, early 70s. Uh, But now we've seen it expanded into other areas. So it does happen from time to time.
2: What? What is your, your uh, percentage of uh, uh, trials won in the federal system?
0: You know, I've never kept um, a record like that. Um, you know, what, what I tell people is, first of all, um, when you say a win, how do you really define a win? Right. So when I have a client who comes with me and he's facing a, uh, a, a series of charges, an indictment with eight or nine serious felonies, where if convicted, um, he's going to be looking at a mandatory life sentence. If at the end of the trial, he's convicted of two lesser included offenses and he ends up getting a four-year sentence, uh, if you ask that former client of mine, he will tell you that was a win. Okay. Still resulted in a conviction, but he would say that was a win. Um, I, You know, this is a real case I had. I had a client charged with a homicide as well as a firearm violation. Um, He was acquitted of the first-degree murder, which carried mandatory life, but he was convicted of the firearm offense. It was a three-year offense. He considered that a victory. Um, Sometimes a plea resolution can also be interpreted as a victory for the same reason. If you go through all the pretrial motions and the pretrial steps, and you really get the prosecutor to see the weakness of their case, or the judge to appreciate the weakness of the case, and at the end of the day you extract a plea that the client who was looking at 20 years now walks away with a deal for 18 months, he probably would interpret that as a win also.
2: great answer, good comeback and yeah. I, and, I, and I didn't mean to put you on the spot
0: no nah, no problem, no problem
2: um, yeah it's, it really it really is I mean I, I I didn't even think about it that way.
0: yeah um, well I could ask the question a lot. You know, well, which you're especially during initial consultations. And so, well, you know, that's difficult to say. Now, when you say a win, tell me what you mean by a win. Uh, if you mean just a straight acquittal, um, then again, now we got to talk about what kind of case we're we talking about. All right. Are we talking about homicide cases? Are we talking about drug offenses? Are we talking about, you know, white collar crime cases? Uh, because the experience is going to be different. Um, so let's talk about your particular situation. Then I'll be able to give you a, a more detailed answer. That's what I normally tell clients.
2: Yeah. When I was going through mine, the whole, the whole experience from the beginning to the end seemed like one giant indirect coercion.
0: Yeah. Well, there's a lot of pressure and you know, it starts from the time that you're arrested. Um, that's kind of subtle pressure that's placed on you. It starts with your bond consideration. Uh, You know, statistically, prosecutors know this, judges know this, and certainly cops know this, that if a defendant is held pretrial in jail, the likelihood that that person is going to plead guilty skyrockets, skyrockets. Um, And it's because they're sitting, they're being denied their liberty, they've lost their employment, they're cut off from their family, they can't provide for their children, Um, and all they have is 24 hours a day to think about what the future is going to look like if they are convicted and if they receive a very long sentence. My clients who are able to be released on bond, um, that same pressure is not there, at least not to the same level. Um, they're able to go on at least with some semblance of their ordinary life. Um, they're not really quote unquote feeling it yet. Um, and they're more likely to go to trial, to um, not waive their rights, um, and to stand strong and go to trial. So because prosecutors and cops and judges all know this, um, they know that the, the, the starting ground to start putting pressure on the defendant is to have them held without bond. Mm-hmm.
2: Also, too, I, I noticed this a lot, too, when I talk to different people, is stacking charges. Yeah. To bump up your your bail.
0: Yeah, yeah, no doubt about it. Prosecutors know that at the state level, especially in the federal level, you know, we have certain cases that are called presumptive cases where judges are instructed by the law that if you're charged with a certain offense under particular considerations, they are to presume that there are no conditions of bond that would be appropriate. Um, so that places the power in the prosecutor's hand. He knows that if he charges you with this particular offense, that the likelihood that you will get out on bond is certainly reduced. And he also knows that if you're held um, without bond, the likelihood that you're going to ultimately cave and plead guilty also goes up. So
2: another question I have is. Well first let me I'm going I'm going to formulate a question here but I want to hear um what got you like what got you to want to become an attorney to begin with and okay. and why did you why did you pick the federal um trajectory
0: Well well you know for as long as I could remember it was all, it's always been a career goal of mine going way back to when I was a kid growing up in Charleston, South Carolina. Um I didn't grow up with much, didn't grow up in a um Rich family, um, a middle-income family. I grew up in a poor family. Um, Most of my childhood was spent growing up in public housing um, and all the bad things that go along with that and growing up in an impoverished neighborhood. A lot of crime, a lot of interactions with police officers in my neighborhood and things like that. And a lot of family members who found themselves on the wrong side of the law. Um, I saw a lot of abuses growing up as a child on how they were being treated, how our community was being policed. Um, and I wanted to, um, and I was attracted to doing something that could be of assistance to people like that, uh, people from my own community. Um, as a kid, I also watched a lot of TV. <laughs> Probably did that more than anything else. Uh, and I always had an attraction to those TV shows that were about uh, legal dramas. Um, I watched Perry Mason, Uh, growing up as a kid, uh, that grew into Matlock uh, Mm -hmm. as a kid, L.A. Law. (laughs) Shows like that always fascinated me. Now I'm really telling on myself my age, right? (laughs) Because I know maybe many of your listeners and viewers probably never even heard of those shows, (laughs) or even if they heard of them, um, never actually watched them. Um, But I did. And so my definition of a lawyer was what I saw on the TV screen. And that was uh, someone in a suit in a courtroom. Um, I didn't even know that there were other ways you could put a law degree to use. Being a trial lawyer to me was the definition of being a lawyer. Now, it's also true that growing up um, without a lot of money, um, you know, everybody who grows up in a situation like that dreams of the day that they could be in a situation where they have money. Um, And. Being a lawyer looked like a pretty way, a pretty good way to make a living. Um, didn't look like uh, a bad way. Um, so that's what really brought me to wanting to be a lawyer. Now, the federal criminal defense side started really after um, I got out of law school, after I graduated, after I had passed the bar and started out in my career. Um, I quickly started to admire um, those lawyers who practiced in federal court. It was just something a little bit cut above uh, with those lawyers. Uh, um, they just seemed to have um, um, more prominent reputations, and um, people always thought of them as being the top uh, uh, cream of the cop crop, if you will. Uh, and I was attracted to that. Um, so when I started my career, I made my way to the local federal courthouse uh, and started trying to consume everything I could. Um, about how I could one day get my foot in the door. Um, so that's always been attractive to me.
2: That's awesome, man. That's, that's really cool. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. John Esteen says, nice show, Sean. Uh, John actually was on the news. Um, uh, and he, it was another uh, individual that was on a conspiracy charge, I believe, and did 20 plus or almost 20 years. I'm not really sure of his story. I haven't had him on my show yet. I'm wow. supposed to. But there's a lot of folks, man, that I, that I'm in contact with and that I talk to that, I mean, this is no, they're no stranger to, to any of the things that we're talking about. And most of them have been victims of it. Yeah. And just like the folks in the, out of the Northern District of Texas, um, it is, I, you know, it's, it's no, di- like anytime that I think of stuff, like I've, I've interviewed a, a gentleman, um, or actually a couple of people that were involved in a, uh, true crime documentary series. They were the producers of it and, and did it all. It's called The Con. And it was about, you know, the 2008 financial crisis and actually how it was, uh, kind of played out with the big short right. didn't tell you and all the whistleblowers and you probably know are familiar with some of these folks that tried to blow the whistle from the de- department yeah. of justice. And, you know, when you're in a bureaucracy, whatever you do only goes as high as the next person above you.
0: That's, right. That's and,
2: right. Yeah. And so if some of these folks are, you know, you're bringing it to their attention and they're not saying anything about it, or they're not taking it to that next level, then it just sort of dies with them.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, one of the real tragedies that came out of that 2008 financial crisis meltdown and what we see happen sometime is that the political response to it sometimes leads to even more misjust injustice in our criminal justice system Um, because there was such pressure, political pressure put on the Department of Justice to start prosecuting um, people who they thought were responsible or had contributed to that whole mortgage scheme um, meltdown that the country experienced. that you had a lot of good people uh, who may have done something very small, maybe gray in nature um, with maybe putting something on their mortgage application that may not have been 100% accurate, um, but it didn't really affect the mortgage decision, um, whether or not um, they truly qualified for the loan Uh, They found themselves being prosecuted um, because, you know, the Department of Justice back then, um, that was their mandate uh, to go out and find as many as they can cases uh, of people who they thought, you know, were responsible for, you know, causing the crisis. And it wasn't people like that that really caused the crisis. It was much more people far higher up on the food chain, if you will, that were truly responsible for it. Um, But I had quite a few clients who ended up coming my way uh, who were um, low-level players, bit role players, uh, lenders, uh, mortgage brokers, uh, even appraisers, uh, people down that low uh, who got caught up in it. Oftentimes, conspiracy charges.
2: Yeah, and, and, you know, when I watched that, it, it kind of painted or diagrammed out, you know, What the, you know, you had the big, the big banks that were, uh, Wall Street that was wanting all these subprime mortgages and there was a call for it and they were incentivizing. Yeah, everybody was being incentivized, you know, from the appraisers all the way, all the way up. And so, yeah, that's, uh, that's really, crazy when you really start to look at at how complex that is. And then most of the time, the guys that are at the top at Goldman Sachs and and some of these other places, the way I look at it is, is like, okay, well, they're, you know, you're, you're getting ready to get chased down an alley. Right. And all of a sudden you just, you, you topple a bunch of stuff. So nobody can, can you make a diversion? Well, that diversion is usually the low level players. And then the, the big guys get away.
0: That's right. That's right. Or
2: they're politically connected. And then we go into that whole thing. Sean, it always comes
0: down to resources. Mm -hmm. All right. The more resources you have in this country, the better off you're going to be. And that certainly applies to our criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't dispel or doubt the fact that the system prides itself on not um, that those things aren't supposed to impact what really happens and what goes on in the courtroom. But the reality is that it does. OK, um, there have been parts of my career where um, I wasn't always uh, an, an attorney for hire. Um, I represented court appointed uh, clients. Um, I lived under those restrictions and limitations uh, of not being able to afford um, certain resources um, to, um, to put toward the defense. Or even if the resources were made available, they certainly had limitations to them. Um, Whereas at this point in my career, um, I don't really offer um, operate under those restraints. Um, So it's easier for me to produce a better outcome now Mm -hmm. than when you have those type of restraints. Um, And, you know, those those limitations are going to be there. Right. Um, The federal government isn't going to pay uh, but so much money for your defense um, if you have the services of court. Appointed lawyer or the public defender. Um, That's just the reality. Okay, Um, but if you have an unlimited or near unlimited amount of financial resources, um, human resources, political connections, and you can bring it all to bear, oftentimes you're going to get a better result.
2: Yeah, that does make sense, and I I, I do remember hearing that, um, especially when I started digging into those uh, cases in in the uh, Northern District of Texas. Is a lot of their court-appointed attorneys, if you're, you kind of have to toe a line because yeah. if if you if you rub somebody the wrong way, you rub the courts the wrong way. They'll pull you off that list, and they won't give you any more jobs.
0: Yeah, and you know, and, and, and unfortunately, you know, we have some lawyers who are on the Criminal Justice Act panel list that you refer to, um, that that's their livelihood. Um, And and you can't, you know, um, frown upon them doing things to protect their own livelihood. Um, It makes sense. You know, in the D.C. area, um, knowing what the average, you know, retained counsel um, would charge for particular cases, comparing that to what the current um, CJA rate is court appointed rate is in the District of Columbia. It's about 15 to 20 percent of what um, a privately retained lawyer on average would command for the same case. Uh, and that's just for his services. Um, again, that does not include all the other extras that he's going to need to really do a good job for you. That doesn't include the private investigator and other ex- experts that might be needed. Um, so it just, it's difficult to produce the same brand of justice um, when you're operating under those limitations.
2: Sounds really messy.
0: Well, it is. <laughs> it
2: is. <laughs> um, so, Oh man, I had, I had a question on my, on my mind. It just, it just slipped me. Oh, there it was. Here it goes. So you're about to become really busy here once, uh, <laughs> all, all the dust settles from these PPE, uh, loans and everything else that, that, you know, were rolled out and, uh, the pay, pre- pay, paycheck protection.
0: What I don't know what the E was, paycheck protection program. In fact, yeah. I, I have a case right now in the Eastern District of Virginia. Uh, That came out of both of those situations, Um, alleged fraud, wire fraud in connection with um, the federal government giving out contracts um, for vendors to supply uh, personal protective um, equipment to the federal government so it could be distributed around the country. Um, You know, it was much of it was done in a very haste manner uh, and the normal due diligence was not applied. And as a consequence, now we're seeing a lot of cases flow through the system right now. Um, Got my first one um, about six, maybe about six months ago. Uh, And the same thing with the payroll protection um, program. We've got that going on, too. Uh, Again, it was rushed through. uh, Normal due diligence was not exercised. Um, And what we're seeing right now is a lot of people got some of those loans, um, maybe didn't precisely qualify. Under the criteria, um, a lot of people rush to apply, um, thinking that the loans would automatically be forgiven, which is not true. Uh, the loans are eligible for forgiveness. Um, and a lot of people don't understand that they are uh, subject to an audit that can come at any point in time um, within the next three years. Um, so just because you got the loan today, and no one has contacted you about whether or not you truly qualify, that doesn't mean within the next three years you won't be contacted um, by an auditor who w- wants to go over your books and assure that you actually get um, properly qualified. And um, so we're going to be dealing with this for years to come.
2: Man. Whew, glad I didn't go for one of those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, yeah. But <laughs> I
0: mean, The one that I have was reported on in our local news. Um, The alleged amount of the fraud was $36.4 million. Wow. Yeah.
2: That's a lot of money. It's
0: a lot of money. So we're at about,
2: uh, where are we, about 50 minutes now. Um, Where do you, like, how do we, do you have any idea or any thoughts on on how we can Fix any of this, like the criminal justice reform. I mean, you know, we've got the 94 crime bill that was enacted, and that which actually, you know,
0: President Biden's role.
2: Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, he 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 was the one that authored it, but Bill Clinton's the one that actually passed it. Right. So, I mean, you know, they were. You can say whatever you want, and I have my own thoughts about how all this stuff shook out, and it all kind of coincided and worked together with the privatization of prisons. With the- <laughs> well, remember it, it was
0: it was it was it was supported by the Congressional Black Caucus. I mean, they they were all on board too. So, you know, there's a lot of blame to go around. There's a lot of blame to go around. How do you fix it? Um, Well, you know, I, you know, I always tell, remind people that, you know, politicians respond to the will of the people Um, and whether that is rich people or, just you know, a number of people. But the point is, is that they take their lead from the people who put them in office. And I'll let you define who that is. Mm -hmm. Um, And so so they can be had. They can be impacted Um, if we don't like the job that they're doing. Um, then we've got to use our power at the ballot box to get some new folks in there. And I know a lot of people will say, well, that can't happen because it's all about money or it's all about special interest and whatnot. I would say if you look at 2008, uh, I think that proves differently uh, when Barack Obama was elected. I certainly believe November the 3rd of 2000 and, um, 2020 proved otherwise, too. Uh, who would have thought that Georgia would have turned out the way it did? Who would have thought that the election would have played out the way it did? Uh, not just that the result was what it was, but how it played out. Um, some traditional red states, solid red states, turned blue um, because people came out and let their will be known. And we've got to do the same thing. This notion that anything that helps people who are uh, accused of committing crimes is automatically a bad thing. uh, We've got to get rid of that. We've got to get rid of that. You know, I know a lot of people are down on the Trump administration and I'm no defender of the Trump administration. But I tell you, whether it was because he was motivated, uh, because he had so many friends of his uh, who found themselves being prosecuted, The Trump administration did some pretty favorable things um, to help improve the criminal justice system. uh, The CARES Act, uh, Compassionate Release, Um, those were things that came out of his administration. Now, again, what his motivation was, I won't speculate about that, uh, but it shows that politicians can be had. you got to use your power, your voice to get to them. To make the changes
2: that we all need. Are you familiar with uh, Amy Can do? I'm and not. I'm can not. Can do clemency? Okay. Yeah, she's. Uh, I've had her on my show, and she she helps get a lot of people out on the cares on the cares act and get it through yeah. clemency and and all that other stuff. Um, what? How? How do we? A lot of the problems that I see. Um, or that I feel like we're going through are a direct result of qualified immunity. And if you're not held accountable to upholding a certain standard of, yeah. of, of behavior, you know, from prosecutorial misconduct to, you know, all of the other stuff that goes along, even with the judges to the police officers that get you in there. If there's no accountability, then, What's there to incentivize you to, to do a good job?
0: Yeah. Well, you know, qualified immunity certainly is something that, you know, I hope, you know, um, grows out of the current call for criminal justice reform. It's it's, it's, it's terrible that so many um, young black men um, like um, um, George Floyd had to lose their lives uh, for many people in this country to wake up and realize that we needed criminal justice reform And certainly, um, as a consequence of particularly his case and his death, um, we started to reexamine all over the country uh, this notion of qualified immunity and being able to hold law enforcement officers to the same standard that you and I um, are held to every day. Uh, If we go out and you or I cause injury to someone um, intentionally or due to our negligence, uh, we could be sued um, out of our livelihood. Um, we could, you know, be held accountable. And law enforcement officers shouldn't be treated any differently. Um, they also should be held accountable when, again, um, they commit uh, criminal conduct, uh, when due to their negligence, people are injured. Um, it should be the same for them as it is for you and I
2: yeah absolutely I, I totally agree with that statement. so we're going to go ahead and wrap it up here. um If you want to follow Robert on his uh social media, you got the instagram right there on the uh screen all of these this information all my links like I said before will be available in the show notes if you're on the podcast uh app uh, platforms or in the description in uh in youtube on YouTube or Facebook. Uh, we got his twitter account too as well. Um, is there anything that you'd like to any burning desires that you want to uh, get out there um, before we end this? Well, Sean, I just want to thank you uh, for having
0: me on and for your listeners. It was a great time. Um, I always love talking about the criminal justice system. Um, while it might be one of its vocal critic um, the truth of the matter is I love the system. I criticize it because I want it to be better. I wanted to live up to the ideals um, that it so often espouses. Um, we can be better. We can do better.
2: Absolutely. And I have one, one question, one more, not a question, but a request. Um, I'm starting a non, actually, I did start a nonprofit and I'm a 501c3 now and I'm going to start working right. with, uh, juvenile, um, transitional youth males, uh, in my county. And Excellent. your, yeah, your story, you know, because you came from that but rose above it would be very impactful uh, to, to present and, and have you talk to some of these guys oh, when yes. I, I get uh, my, my, everything situated.
0: I would love to do it. Um, I try to do um, that type of um, outreach and mentoring every opportunity I get um, because there were many um, who touched in my life early on and assured that I would take the path that I took and wouldn't get gobbled up by the system. Um, so if I can um pay it back in any way, shape or form, um please don't hesitate to reach out.
2: Thank you and I appreciate it. So we're gonna go ahead and and close this out with the uh with the outro. Go ahead and uh I'm gonna pull us out and I'm gonna talk to you okay. real quick. Um okay. on the bottom. Great. Everybody, thank you for stopping by and checking out the show i appreciate it we got one more tomorrow evening at 6 p.m uh morgan denay and she is a uh a trauma specialist she'll be on tomorrow at 6 p.m so uh until then thank you for listening thank you for stopping by and uh, i hope you have a great evening
1: spot for merch patreon paypal and social media links go to linktree tr slash nowhere to go but up on instagram at nowhere to go but up now on twitter at but up now on the youtube channel at nowhere to go but up podcast see you next time